Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Becoming a cop, especially today, isn't easy. Learning how to become one, even more difficult. I'm Officer Tommy Model, and I've been a cop for a decade plus. Grab a warm cup of coffee, open your mind, and take in my free field training. Today for Field Training, we're going to be talking about stupid things that old cops told me when I first started on the job. I have been a full-time police officer in the Chicagoland area for 16, almost 17 years now. And when I started on the job 16 years ago, there it was a very closed-minded atmosphere. You were explained how to do something, and sometimes nobody really took the time to think those things all the way through, which is in stark contrast to the way it is today where some people's minds are so open that their brains have fallen out. Maybe we can talk about that in future videos. I'm live streaming this on YouTube and then we're gonna take comments and questions at the end. Subscribe if you would like to be part of the conversation in the future, be able to make comments and questions live and get interaction with me. I have 10 stupid things that old cops told me when I first started, and one bonus thing to discuss with you tonight. And the bonus thing's kind of a doozy. I'm sure it's gonna create some conversation in the comments section for me. Number 10 is cars with tinted windows are dangerous, and you should write people tickets for having tinted windows. Anytime you see a car with tinted windows, and especially anytime you pull it over, you should take as much enforcement action as humanly possible. And this one came when I started the police academy, 2005, 2006. At the time, although people are gonna say, oh, you know, SUVs have been around forever, they were not as completely dominant on the US car market as they are today. So it was kind of unusual to come across a car that had really dark back tinted windows. The idea at the time was you couldn't get light through it and at the time flashlights were not what flashlights are today and the spotlights on squad cars were not what they are today, takedown lights are not what they are today. At the time we had halogen lights. It's a handheld light that was 100 lumens was considered a lot. I remember my first Surefire being uh, 60 lumens and that being like, whoa, 60 whole lumens. So it was, it was a crazy time for, for lighting, but also that created cops that were really afraid of dark tinted windows because dark tint hasn't really changed all that much over time. So the idea was if you can't see through the back window, you can't see what's going on inside the car, it was super dangerous. Ended up not being all that true. Most people that have tinted windows on their car, especially in the area that I was in, because it's not a particularly nice area, just didn't want people seeing them in their car and not necessarily the police not seeing them in their car was just like the general public they didn't want them seeing them in their car because they didn't want to be a victim of crime and they didn't want somebody seeing them looking at them especially like window washers and stuff seeing them and then you know hassling them so if you had dark tinted windows it kept you from doing all of that but they were upset even at the time in 2006 guys were really upset about tinted back windows in fact we had instructors at the academy that suggested if you did a felony stop and the vehicle had a tinted back window as a matter of course, you should just break out the back window so that we could see inside earlier. And I could just yeah, or see inside easier. And I could just imagine how well that would go over today. Just every felony stop you do, breaking out the back window. Obviously, there's times that you could articulate why you need to do that, but that's not it's not the way it is today. Number nine is people would shoot at your weapon-mounted light. I I think this came from like a Vietnam 
veteran perspective with tunnel rats or something that in war, I guess, any light in the jungle people would shoot at during the time period, that was the, the common knowledge, but that hasn't really become a thing that we've been super worried about. And also if you know how to use the weapon mounted light, you're not just leaving it on all the time to make it a target. You use it when you need to identify something and then you shut the thing off. And so that hasn't become the issue that anybody said it would. When I went to the police academy, almost nobody had a weapon mounted light. We had one female officer at the academy with me that had a weapon light. It was our early TLR-1. Uh, not the HL version at that time, just the early TLR-1. And those were crazy bright at the time. I think there were 200 whole lumens. And there were instructors at the academy that were upset that she came with that. They said that that was crazy and people would shoot at the light and people took all sorts of crap. And I started using a weapon mounted light maybe four or five years later. That's how long it took for them to become really popular. And when I put a stream light, I think it was a TLR-1 was my first weapon mounted light, on my pistol, a lot of people gave me crap about it because it was so bright. And they were like, what do you need to see with all of that light? And it was so bright. It was 250 lumens, I think, at the time, the TLR-1s. And it was like a, a crazy exotic thing for people to have. And now it's just kind of the way things are. No one would ever make fun of someone for having a weapon-mounted light anymore. At least it, nobody that's got a whole lot of brains and, brains and intelligence. At least nobody that, that had their act together. Number eight, that it was going to be absolutely critical that you be able to shoot over the top of your police car. Because if you got in a gunfight in a parking lot, you're going to notice some. a lot of these have to do with, with crazy gunfight situations that are very rarely, if ever, going to happen in the real world. But there was this idea that if you got in a gunfight in a parking lot, you'd want to be able to shoot over the top of the cars at the bad guy. Now, with SUVs, that seems kind of silly. You'd have to be seven foot tall to be able to like punch out and, and shoot easily over the top of a Suburban or a Tahoe or even like I, I have a Subaru Ascent. There's no way, like the tallest, the tallest man on my department could not shoot over the top of a Ford Explorer without you know doing one of these over the top of the car. It's kind of silly, but at the time that was considered like an, an absolute requirement. And remember when they lowered height requirements for police officers, like that was still the, the fallout from that is that you didn't have to be over 5'10 or something to be a police officer. And so uh, guys were still upset about it. They were like, what are you gonna do if you're gonna a gunfight in a parking lot? Can't you even shoot over the top of a car? And now we know that's, how often are you getting in gunfights in parking lots and shooting over the top of the car? And where are all these cars today you're gonna shoot over the top of? Even compact SUVs now are way too tall for most people to just you know, accurately fire over the top of it. it was kind of silly. But at the time, that was just that was just common knowledge. This is like that's crazy that that you would want to be a cop if you couldn't shoot over the top of a car. Uh, number seven is the idea that polymer handguns, specifically Glocks, would melt if you left them in a car. Now, later on, this became kind of the joke. Oh, it's it's a it's a polymer frame pistol. Oh, don't leave it in your car; it might melt. People really believed, I was told when, when I first started, that you should never leave your pistol in the trunk of your car when you're driving to work because if it got left in there for whatever reason, the plastic could melt. I'll just let that one float there. In case you don't know, it's, it's not how that works. Number six is cell phones. The attitude towards cell phones in law enforcement has changed, has taken a complete 180 in 16 years, probably in the last 10 years. 
When I started, you weren't allowed to have your cell phone on you when you were on duty. If you had your cell phone, it had, if you had your cell phone, it had to be in your duty bag or in the car and you had to have it like either completely shut off or the ringer off. Some police departments near me would not allow you to have your cell phone when you were working. They said anything you had to say, you had to come to the station, you had to use a payphone, or you could just say it over the radio. I can't even I can't even fathom that today. It's it's almost silly to think about it being that way today. And the one of the things they said is that people were allowed to carry their cell phones on them. The cell phone could ring at any time. Remember, people did not trust electronics even 10 years ago, especially in like life safety situations. They did not trust these uh, electronics at the time, which was just flip phones, mostly just flip phones. And they were afraid that something would go wrong with the electronics and the cell phone would ring while they were searching a building. It would give away their position and they could lead them to getting killed. If you look back at old like Police One articles, you can actually find a lot of this stuff. The Weapon Mounted Light one, I think they still still publish articles on their Facebook page all the time about how you shouldn't, you know, patrol officers shouldn't be using weapon model lights. It's like wild stuff. But the cell phone thing still kills me because today you have to have a cell phone. I get looked at funny if I say, I, sorry, I don't have my phone on me. I'm going to have to come in or I'm going to have to find a phone. They're like, what do you mean you don't have your phone on you? I get the fifth degree about why I don't have my phone on me because you just kind of expected that you're going to be able to call into the office, call your boss, call this other person, whatever. You have to basically have to have a cell phone to do this job. Uh, five years ago, I would only carry my cell phone on me when I was training someone because I was constantly taking calls from supervisors, administrators and stuff about the training and about what we were doing and the, us, them wanting us to go to certain things. Hey, we got this opportunity. We can go to the morgue, see this autopsy today, stuff like that. And now it's everybody is carrying their cell phone at all times. And it's, it's almost weird to find somebody who isn't. Another one that has taken a complete 180 in just the last few years is medical. Now, 16 years ago, medical was only for the fire department. If you came up on a scene of a shooting, you were trained not to do anything with that person. Your job was to preserve the crime scene and to let the fire department or EMS come in and try to save the person. If they couldn't, to just leave the person there so that way the detectives could inspect the body, we could take pictures, we could try to collect forensic evidence, stuff like that. But you were absolutely not to be doing CPR on people. You were not to be putting tourniquets on people. I mean, that was considered, like, that was almost like a use of force issue, put a tourniquet on somebody. Like, that, that was considered crazy. Uh, any type of attack med was considered crazy. They said, well, I mean, if it's one of us that gets hit, you know, we'll do what we can do if you know how to do something for them. But otherwise, you were not to do first aid on anybody. The thought was that if you were an EMT or a paramedic and also a cop, that you were going to get some sort of enhanced liability because you were a professional in that environment. So now, well, what do we do? Are we doing the law enforcement function or are we doing the medical function? And they thought there were going to be some sort of court issues with having cops that were also paramedics. And now everyone carries a tourniquet, as well they should. And there's a big push toward people carrying med kits. In fact, a med kit is our giveaway from last month. So that'll interest all of you if that interests you. Also, we're required to provide aid in Illinois now. So it went from don't do anything to no, no, no. If there's somebody's in a life-threatening situation and, you know, as long as the scene's safe and you can, you need to provide immediate aid to that person, which is like, it's a like I said, it's a complete 180 on the medical side. Number four is to write as little as possible on reports so that way you weren't locking yourself into a story. 
Yeah, that was a thing, was to write as little as humanly possible, to put the bare minimum in a report, to not add anything at all that might mitigate the circumstances or explain away things that we also took into consideration. I was actually taught early on, don't put anything in the report that might mitigate that person being charged. Even if you can explain it, if it's something that you investigated and you determined that there was nothing to it, don't put it in there. So if there were multiple people injured on a scene and you didn't charge anybody with those people being injured, you would just not put it in your report, which is just mind-blowing to me today, especially with the civil liability involved with making sure people just, just making sure people get medical assistance, right? So if I go to a scene and there's four people with black eyes and bloody noses and stuff, and I've only got evidence that one person attacked another person and that caused an injury, I'm going to document all of those injuries. And if I can, I'm going to get the paramedics there and make sure that those people either get treated or sign refusals or medical gets them to whatever definitive care they best possibly can. And I'm going to document how all that was done in the report. So nobody can come back and say, well, this guy was all beat up and, you know, Officer Tommy, he didn't do anything about it. I don't want any of that. I make sure that I document all of that so that later on I know, hey, look, no, no, no. Yeah, I did. Actually, you know what? I did see this. I did see that. I did see that. And here's how we mitigated that. That way people can't come back later and say, well, this person was injured and you didn't document it and they talked with you. And I said, that's not true because every time someone's injured and I see them and I talk to them, I document it. Complete 180 in that regard as well. And it's, it was lots of things with report writing that are just mind blowing now that I can't believe that we did. But that, that one, paring things down as much as possible, only putting things that supported the narrative for charging a single person in a police report is one of those. It's absolutely crazy, the stuff people used to tell me. We're gonna take a quick break here at Free Field Training Podcast. While you're listening to the words from the people that helped me do all this, head over to freefieldtrainingpodcast.com, click on the contact button and send me your thoughts about this episode. We'll be right back. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Everyone, welcome back to the Free Field Training Podcast. Number three is if you're going to be a cop, you have to drink and smoke cigarettes, which is... It's funny to me at this point. It's not sad. It's not silly. It's just funny. I didn't drink or smoke when I started on the job, and I'm still not a big drinker, and I've never smoked cigarettes. 
And everyone that I know that told me that early on, I'm talking about people that had 15, 20 years on when I was just first starting 15 years ago, all of them smoked and drank. And now all of them have either quit smoking or have tried to quit smoking. And many of them are extremely poor health and some of them are dead. That was a thing. They said, oh, if you're going to do this job, man, you're going to have to go out drinking on the weekends with the guys. You know, you got to be got to be part of the club and go drinking with the guys. And you're going to start smoking, man, because, you know, the stress of this job gets to you and there's just no other way to deal with it. I was like, have you ever heard of exercise? You're like, that's crazy, crazy young kid talk exercise to get rid of stress. But hey, what do you know? Exercising to get rid of stress. You wouldn't know it by my physique, but exercising to get rid of stress, it does work. You should give it a try if you're trying smoking instead right now. Number two that I was told by several people, most of them people that had 20 plus years on the job was, and many of them supervisors and administrators who hadn't been out working for many, many years, was that you didn't need a knife or a backup gun because if you got into a really rough tussle, you had a problem with somebody, you just go all out, man. You just do anything you have to do. You could hit them with your radio. You can bite and claw at them or whatever else. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you just have the proper tool to do that job? Maybe it was just the area that I was at, but there was a very real stigma against carrying a small revolver as a backup gun, which now is fairly common, at least in my area, and definitely a huge stigma against carrying a knife as a force option in case you get locked up with somebody, like somebody much larger than you is on top of you on the ground trying to get your pistol away. The idea that having a knife would help you fend that person off was seen as kind of silly. Like, well, just bite them. I was like, dude, what if you're not near my face? Like, And now they're very common. That has done another thing that's done a complete 180 still it's very rare today to find a cop that isn't carrying some sort of pocket knife and at least somewhere in the back of their head they're thinking about that there's many companies that make knives specifically for that person you have like the k-bar i think it's called the tdi there's a bunch of companies that make little push knives that go on belt keepers and things like that it's a very very common thing and even if you people aren't carrying one of those specialized knives lots of people carry a knife on their right and their left side Huh? That's generally why cops are doing that, is to have that use of force option in case they are completely overpowered or they're fighting for their gun against two people. It's a little hard to fight two people at once unless you've got some sort of force option. And if you're trying to protect your gun and fight that person off with one hand, it helps if you've got a bladed object in that hand or something sharp or, or zappy. Another weird thing that was carried at the time but isn't carried now, here's a little bonus for you now that I'm thinking of it, it's not written on my notes, but stun guns were still a thing and blackjacks were just finally winding their way out of law enforcement. There were guys that still had little the nine volt battery stun guns, basically for that same purpose, the same thing we'd use knives for today, I guess they thought the stun guns would do. There were some people that were carrying stun guns around because their departments hadn't been issued tasers yet. By the way, 16 years ago is long enough ago, I didn't have a taser when I started and almost nobody did. The couple places that did have tasers, it was just the supervisors that were carrying tasers around. The number one stupid thing that was told to me when I was brand new 16 years ago was just another tool in your toolbox. And that's something that's still told to me today, which we know now is not true. The more options you have to solve a problem, the slower it is for you to put those options into effect. So another tool in your toolbox is great if 
it's a legal tool. If there's this law, this law, this law, this law, and this law, that all can be applicable to this situation. You know, we go to a domestic and we've got criminal damage laws that we can use. We've got trespassing laws that we can use. There's, there's civil matter issue laws that we can use. There's battery laws and assault laws. There's all sorts of laws and statutes and ordinances that we can use to try to solve those domestic issues. But when it comes to techniques to defend yourself, it's better to have a few techniques that you're very good with than it is to have 50 of them that you just kind of know a little bit and tried a couple of times. It's better to be really good as a defensive tactics instructor and a handcuffing instructor. I can tell you this for certain, it is much better to be very good at a reverse takedown and grappling with people just like grabbing them by their legs and getting them to the ground without getting hurt than it is to know 20 techniques but have only practiced them five years ago. Uh, it is much better to be really good with two hands with your pistol than to spend equal time shooting two hands, right-handed, left-handed, on the ground, one knee, rollover prone, inline prone. You're going to spend your limited amount of training resources and your limited amount of equipment budget putting it into stuff that you only marginally know how to use. And then if you're trying to take somebody into custody and you're really good at reverse takedowns and you're really good at getting their knees together and not getting hurt, getting them on the ground, climbing on top of them and putting the habeas gravis on them, but you're not so good at all the other stuff, you can apply that, you can apply a reverse takedown. Let's say I'm trying to take them down from the rear. I can put a reverse takedown on them and take them down to the ground. I can also go with their knees and I'm really good at that. If I'm taking them from the front and they start, let's say somebody came up on them on the ambush position from the rear and they go to do a reverse takedown and fails, I can take them out at the knees and bring them down to the ground. So I've got two things that I'm really good at that I can apply and apply well, not get hurt. If I try spending equal amount of time doing, and a precious little amount of time, trying to learn eight or nine takedown techniques, and I'm trying trying to apply them and failing at it, I'm more likely to get hurt, and I'm more likely that technique is gonna fail. Some of the worst people with techniques are people, and have the most failures for takedowns, and the most failures for arrest, are people that go to lots and lots and lots of classes, but then never practice any of the techniques again and I work with many of them. I can assure you that it's a very regular thing. Guys get hurt all the time trying to do things that they did in class 10 years ago. They haven't practiced or used since. They're like, oh, this is the perfect opportunity to do it. It's also gonna take us longer to pick which of these techniques to do. And there's studies, I can link some of them down below, there's studies showing that it's gonna take you longer to decide which tool you use on your belt if you have 10 of them than it will if you only have three and you're only picking between those three things. The flip side of this, of course, is if you've only got a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail syndrome. We want to stay away from that. But if we have a, a robust group of options for things that we're really good at and tools that we're very, very good at applying, it's a lot better for us than having a bunch of stuff that we're mediocre or poor at. And your bonus thing. One of the worst pieces of advice that I got as a new guy, as a cop, on a police department, full-time ever was when the old-timers used to say shitheads drive shithead cars. When the old-timers used to say shitheads drive shitbox cars. Of all the things that I have determined to have not be true now and have never been true, it is that notion. 
That's a very small way to think. A very small way to think. People that think that because a car is a piece of crap, that the person driving it is probably also a piece of crap, even though they might find a correlation to that in the real world, like a person that's driving a crappy car is more likely to not have insurance because they don't have the money for insurance. They're more likely to have their license suspended because they don't have the money to pay tickets so they get their license suspended and they can't pay the $2,000 or whatever ridiculous amount it is to get their license unsuspended. But by thinking of stops that way, well, what we've done is negated all of the real criminals that have resources that are out there in the world. You are never gonna find kilos in a car if that's the type of thing that you're worried about, you're never gonna find that driving down the road just pulling over any car that has a loud exhaust or has a broken front bumper or that's got a partially flat tire or a cracked windshield or something like that. Those types of investigative stops can be helpful. You can gain information from them. Sometimes you can you can flip those people. People will be like, oh, well, you know, you know, I know about some stuff in the neighborhood. You might be able to flip them around and find uh, serious cases, but every time I've gotten something really serious, it has been from a fairly nice car, oftentimes rental cars, sometimes high-end cars that have been stolen or borrowed from family members, friends, or somebody left running at the local gas station, or nobody knows or even missing yet because they've spoofed the key. So that's the thing that, it's the one thing that stuck out in my mind. It's what started this video as I was, I thought about it. I, was, I pulled over a car and we got a pretty good, pretty good bust out of it. I think it was from a kidnapping about a year ago when I originally wrote this. And I was like, wow, you know, like it's such a nice car. And I remember early on, I was constantly concentrating on crappy cars because the the thought of the day was, oh, well, you know, you'll just pull over the bad cars, which I think it's just, it's the thought that like, if it's, we're just going to punish the poor for being poor type of thing, which luckily is, is fading out of the, the law enforcement lexicon. But it was very popular 16 years ago. And I can assure you then and today, I've never found it to be true in my own experience, especially after I started pulling over nice cars and then find out that people with brand new Mercedes sometimes are suspended for multiple DUIs where people were killed and now they're driving drunk again. And that kind of makes it all worthwhile, giving equal time to enforcing traffic regardless of what the car looks like instead of tar trying to target cars that are all beat up. So that should have gotten some interesting comments and questions. If you're interested in being part of the conversation that I'm about to have here, go down there and subscribe so that way you can catch the videos when they're live. We've got lots of ideas for podcasts, but we always need more. And we love hearing what the audience would love to hear about. Head on over to freefieldtrainingpodcast.com and tell me what questions you have and we'll make another episode about it. Click on contact, fill out the quick web form, and let's make some more free field training.